everyone and welcome to the OMC's Mindfulness in the Workplace podcast series. Each of these sessions explores a different aspect of mindfulness in workplace contexts, as well as key themes that we believe will be relevant to support you. Previous episodes have covered mindfulness in a medical setting, delivering mindfulness online and current research in mindfulness. All podcasts are available on the OMC, OMC webpage for listeners to access at a later date. I'm Sharon Hadley, the CEO of the Oxford Mindfulness Centre, and today we're going to be exploring creating a speak-up culture with Megan Rates. Megan's a Professor of Leadership and Dialogue at Astridge Education, Executive Education, which is part of Holt International Business School. She supervises PhDs, working on an Executive Doctorate in Organisational Change, and also teaches on a range of other open programmes. Megan's also written a few books, Speaking Up and Mind Time. I'm very delighted to welcome you, Megan. Thank you for joining us today. Lovely to be here. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we have um, had several connections over the years on mindfulness and mindfulness in the workplace, and I'm, I'm delighted you've, you've offered to do this talk for us today. Could you tell us a little bit about how you've come to, to where you are yourself? What's your personal story? Um, well, my main area that I look at at the moment is leadership and, and I guess, communication inside organisations. And I, I started life, started my career as um, a management consultant because I didn't really know what else to do. And uh, I, I generally, I sort of focused on strategy, organisational strategy. And I began to notice how it was possible to create a perfect strategy on paper and then offer it to an organization who, you know, sounded very enthusiastic. And then, and then actually implementing that strategy was an entirely different activity. You know, you can create the perfect strategy, but will it work? No. So I began to be very interested in the role of leadership, uh, how organizations change, and what dynamics go on inside organizations that are helpful and what are unhelpful. And I ended, you know, various other points in my career, but then I ended up doing a PhD, which specifically looked at organizational dialogue. And during that, I became, um, the word is probably obsessed, by how we, encounter one another inside organizational systems so how do we speak hear challenge learn care for one another inside systems that you know really do make it very very tricky to do all of that well to be honest um and what is leader what is is the leadership role within that and I, I also began about 20 years ago with the help of my very dear co-author a co-researcher Michael Chaskelson uh, uh, a personal first of all a very personal interest in mindfulness and mindfulness practice um, and then of course as my research uh, went on inside organizations I began to be very interested in okay, what does mindfulness practice have to say about how we care and encounter and speak and learn from one another inside these systems? So that, that really brought me to where I am today. Yeah, fascinating. I mean, there were so many different 
things you mentioned there that we could go off on and have separate conversations about. I'm particularly interested in your work, Megan. It's um, fascinating. And I think that the speaking and the culture and mindfulness connect so beautifully. I think you know it's really lovely that you've been able to bring those two things together in your work. Your most recent book looks at um, explores creating the speak up culture um, that's that's becoming more kind of more of a common term, I think, around speaking up in the workplace. Can you tell us a bit more about that and you know what you've what you've shared in your book for those of us that haven't read it, maybe? Certainly. So I suppose the way into this is that you know you and I and everybody listening to this have habits, <laughs> lots of habits, but the habits that I'm quite interested in are the habits we have around when we speak up and what we speak up about and when we stay silent and also the habits that we have around when we listen and what we listen to, who we listen to and whose opinions do we discount, whose voices do we ignore. Uh, and actually, we, we have our individual habits around that. And our teams develop habits around what gets said and what doesn't and who gets hurt and who doesn't. And then, you know, our organisations have cultures. And one way to think of culture is what gets said and what doesn't, who gets hurt, who influences, who has the power. Um, and so over the last seven years with a, a, a co-researcher called John Higgins, we've been exploring, well, why do people have the habits that they do? And what are the consequences? And there's been a, a, you know, a number of real drivers from an organizational perspective, from a leadership perspective here. Um, and it's been interesting to see how they've shifted actually over seven years. I'd say when we started the project, which is, our project's actually called Speaking Truth to Power. When we started that, we had a lot of interest, particularly from regulated uh, industries and organizations. So, you know, banking, for example, or healthcare, that were very interested in helping people to speak up about compliance issues. You know, we, Megan, we need those people to speak up when they've made a mistake or when they've seen something that shouldn't be happening. You know, and um, actually when we started the project was exactly the same time as VW were in the headlines around the emissions scandal. So I think a whole raft of organisations suddenly thought, uh-oh, I might end up on the front page of the newspaper for the wrong reasons here. So how do we get people to speak up? So it started there. Um, and then, then we entered a, <laughs> an age of agility in terms of leadership thinking and practice. And so, you know, I, you couldn't literally, still probably the case, you couldn't go to a conference on leadership or HR without the word agile being mentioned every other sentence. And, you know, to be agile, to be innovative, you need conversational habits that enable people to speak up with ideas. And perhaps even more tricky than that, you need, the habit that enable people to challenge the way things are done. So they need to be able to speak up about that. So the, the consequences on organizational um, capacity to innovate and be agile are, are really intimately connected with what I call conversational habits. 
Um, and then most recently, um, we've you know really thankfully seen a uh, a response in terms of diversity and inclusion. So you know how do you create inclusive workplaces? Whose voices get heard? Let's get real about this. Let's start talking properly about power and status and authority and what that means for whose voices are heard and whose voices are discounted and what are the consequences and implications on those people but also on the organizations that they're part of. Um, so yeah, so it, it, the, these conversational habits, I suppose, they have huge consequences on us as individuals, you know, in terms of our careers, our relationships and pretty much whether we feel proud of ourselves. Um, and they have big consequences on teams and organizations. So the latest work in the book, Speak Up, is all about those habits and how you begin to recognize them and disrupt them. And actually, the final thing I'll say um, is, although the book is called Speak Up, uh, it's probably slightly more about listen up because one thing we noticed very early on is this tendency that actually we all have at pointing at other people and wondering, you know, why aren't they speaking up? They need to be braver. They need to be more courageous and just speak up. But of course, uh, really people stay silent very often because it isn't a safe environment for them to speak up. So how do we listen how do we invite people to speak up and how do we create how do we create a workplace culture where you don't have to be so courageous and brave in the first place so that's the bit that i really really am getting stuck into and, and interested in and that is a leadership role and practice yeah fascinating because the words i was thinking when you were speaking was around courageous and brave but you're right there's um it would be nice if the workplace didn't require you to be courageous and brave, that it was safe, like you say. How, how, can, how can the work around mindfulness support that? And how, how do those two things support each other to enable that to happen? So, yeah, this is interesting. I started both big research projects at Ashridge around about the same time, seven years ago. And, you know, as I said, one was called Speaking Truth to Power and the other one was Mindful Leadership. And at the beginning, I, these two research projects were fairly separate. Um, and, uh, you know, a few years in, the penny dropped and the two started coming together. So I, I guess in, in two main ways. Um, the first is the role of mindfulness in habit change. So with any habits, if you want to stop doing them, it's very helpful to be aware in the moment when you're about to do what you've always done. If you're on autopilot and uh, you are just not here, you will continue to do exactly the same as you've always done. So that capacity to catch oneself in the moment of habit opens up the most amazing thing and that's choice the choice in how to respond. And you, didn't you don't have that choice when you're on autopilot. Um, you only have that choice when you have um, the capacity to notice 
and be aware of what is going on in the present moment. And a lot of that research um, as well came through the mindful leadership work with Michael. Uh, and we, we began to notice, look, one of the key, key things that is important for leadership is that mindfulness practice enables you to have this awareness in the moment that opens up choice of how to respond to a situation rather than re react. And so that's, you know, the, the, the sort of overarching thing is if you want people to speak up, if you want yourself to speak up differently or listen up in different ways, you have to have that level of awareness in the moment so that you can choose, you know, how do I do this to the best of my capacity? Um, uh, and if you don't do that, things will just stay the same. Uh, culture doesn't shift. Um, the other thing I would say is that in our mindful leader research, um, we, we came up with a model which we called AIM. Um, and this was, this was derived from coding about, you know, I think it was about 27 hours worth of participant conversations on mindfulness practice and its links to leadership. So we were trying to understand, well, what, what does mindfulness practice do for leaders? What are they, what are they practicing in, mindful, in mindfulness meditations that, that then proves to be useful in their leadership work? And um, we identified from the coding, we identified three things. Um, and that was allowing inquiry and meta-awareness, hence we called it AIM. So um, allowing is about the capacity to accept present reality. You know, what is the case right now is the case. We may not like it, we may not want it, but here it is. <laughs> we kind of need to just see that and accept it rather than using an overwhelming amount of energy wishing it was different because it isn't. So allowing is that capacity to kind of accept where we're at. And it's also that ability to care and feel compassion towards ourselves and others. Inquiry, fairly obviously, is the ability to be curious and question uh, and in the workplace and particularly leaders can spend an inordinate amount of time advocating, uh, not nearly enough time inquiring. Um, and mindfulness practice, you know, is, is the, well, certainly what the, the practices that we've been using, full of inquiry and curiosity about present moment experience. So question, question, question. And then M stands for meta-awareness, which is this ability that um, that we have through mindfulness practice to have that what, what's been called intimate detachment, that ability to observe our thoughts, feelings, sensations and impulses in the moment. So this amazing ability for us to be able to kind of go, oh, look what I'm thinking or me, look how my body is right now. It, that's that's uh, meta awareness. Now, taken together, allowing, inquiring and meta-awareness, that is the, those are the three things that then we found opens up this space to respond, which seems so important for leaders. And the work that we've done sort of more recently, we, we um, wrote a Harvard Business Review article last year on collective mindfulness or team mindfulness. 
And this is where it really gets into the territory of creating a speak up culture. So how in our teams are we able to create a culture that is mindful? So in other words, how are we able to allow, you know, stop judging one another, another quite as much as we usually do and start caring and feel compassion towards one another in a team? How do we inquire more than just have a fight around advocating our opinions? And how are we able to step out of our own murky team dynamics enough to be able to gain different perspective? And what we know is that that, all of those things really are essential if we're going to change the way we speak and listen to one another. So um, I think, you know, I final thing, I, you know, I drew on um, a, a quote by David White, who I'm going to slightly misquote him now, but he, he essentially says, you know, in order to have a deeper conversation, you need to have stop having the one that you're having right now, mm. you know? So in order to be able to create a speak up culture, you've got to stop what you're currently doing and doing it and do it differently. And how do you do it differently? Well, you have to be mindful in the moment. You have to be aware. Thank you, Megan. I mean, there's many things in there that mindfulness teachers will recognize, um, you know, as, as, as general mindfulness, not being able to pause and make a decision and, and respond and not react. I, I think the piece that maybe not everybody's done is that connection to how habits you know, actually impact on, on, on what we do and actually maybe, you know, linking those two, I think has been beautifully done in what you've just said. I wonder if I could come back with a question around the AIM model. Um, I know we've, we've spoken briefly about it before you and I, but not, you know, you've not explained it in quite as much detail. And it was really interesting to hear because one of the words um, that I find interesting uh, in, in mindfulness is this word acceptance. And particularly in, in the workplace, sometimes I'm challenged on that word around, mm. does that then mean if the workplace is um, a, not a pleasant place that we use mindfulness to just accept that's how it is and get on with it? And I can know they, your listeners won't be able to see, but I can see you shaking your head there. Um, <laughs> and I wonder what your response to that would be. Um, you know, you know oh, oh, you're just teaching us mindfulness so that we can accept a really poor, poor practices. Yeah, that, no. Yeah, would you maybe? Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing that's not what you're saying here, but maybe just a tiny bit more on that would be really interesting for me. Yeah, absolutely not. In fact, it's virtually the opposite to that. Uh, we mentioned that in the in the HBR article as well. So um, acceptance is around our ability to accept present reality as it is, rather than wish it was different or exert an exceptional amount of energy wishing things weren't as they were. So a classic example I use is um, around organizational restructures. Um, you know, and <laughs> I spend a lot of time with managers and leaders who are wishing that the restructure was not either not happening or definitely not happening in the way that it currently is. Yeah. And I meet uh, lots of people that are wishing their team wasn't as it was or wishing that their boss would kind of have some sort of enlightenment moment and start 
being far more careful and compassionate about how they lead the team. So acceptance is about realizing that at this moment in time, things are what they are. My boss is what my boss is like right now. The restructure is right now happening as it is. Yeah. So rather than waste, you know, 90% of my time in an anguished, it's not fair, it shouldn't be, but why it's their faultness, which really is it's really quite difficult to know how that can be productive, aside from just wearing us down and making us much more anxious and stressed. And probably then that leaking out and making the situation far worse. It's our ability to just say, right, well, it is what it is right now. So therefore, what do I do now to be most productive? And that might be, what can I do now to be most productive in order to shift and change things? Yeah. But leaving behind all of that energy that's engaged with fighting. Yeah. So, but I agree with you, it's, it's, a, it's a weird concept for people to consider, you know, acceptance or, or allowing, but that's generally, you know, how I, how I tend to describe it. Yeah. And that ability to step back and accept may also lead to um, a looking after oneself, which may be to remove yourself from that organisation or that culture. I think that's... Yes. The other, the other side of what we're, I think we're trying to teach in mindfulness is, is that, you know, sometimes that that's the decision to look after yourself and 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 maybe make that move, um, but hopefully not. Hopefully, support the organisation, the culture to. Yeah, and and that's the you know that's as well as the compassion and and the self compassion aspect, which I think is so important is you know if you're finding yourself in a toxic environment. Um, you know, how do you how do you look after yourself? And that may well mean, actually, this is not okay. Uh, and I I will be, you know, I will be making choices that that help me to get out of that toxic mm-hmm. environment. Having said that, uh, given the work that I uh, do, um, particularly recently, with activism, some people are not in the position to move and shift yeah toxic work environment so you know I, I I really recognize that not everybody feels like they are in a place where they can kind of go okay I'll just switch jobs yeah. okay I'll go and find another team to work with yeah. that's sometimes not possible as well yeah. um that that compassion for self and the capacity to read uh signals that our mind and body sends us to treat those seriously and to to look after ourselves and know how to do that is is also vital yeah you touched on your activism um there i I would i would like to finish with that but before before we move into that could i um could i a lot of your work is on mindful leadership and um I'm always interested to hear from people like yourselves who are immersed in one particular area, well, not just one, but leadership being one of your areas. If if the, the listeners to this podcast, a lot of them are teaching in the workplace, a lot of them are being asked to go into work. Some, some of them are embedded in workplaces already. And some people are being asked, they're mindfulness teachers, and they're being asked to go in as independents into the workplace. 
Um, so what would you say to the mindfulness teachers that are in the workplace if they have maybe five minutes with a leader, um, a senior leader of a, of a large company, and they have maybe five minutes? What would be maybe the two or three key things that you would say or you would, you would encourage mindfulness teachers to say if a leader was new to, to mindfulness or new to kind of the speak up culture? What would be the one or two kind of nuggets of kind of things that you'd, you'd really want to leave as a as a thought for those leaders when they're considering this um, approach in the workplace? Um, yeah, I mean, of course, it depends where your leader is in terms of, um, I, I'm, I'm quite used to working with leaders that either know nothing about mindfulness or they have formulated some very interesting views about what mindfulness might be, generally they're negative. Yes, they're exactly the sort of people I'm talking about. So okay. I've heard so, stuff about mindfulness. What is it, and is it worth? I've got five minutes. What is you know? Yeah. Is it is it worth me even considering it in the workplace? What what would like? What are the things that you go that would really interest leaders to know that? Or well, um, I suppose it might be you know when I'm running a workshop, I w I don't start with mindfulness. I start with what are the leadership capacities that you require in order to lead this organization and team really well. Yeah. So what, what's, in other words, what's on your agenda? Um, and it, actually this is some of the research we've done on speaking up as well is the importance of, you know, start, start where they are. Um, and our, you know, in our research on mindful leadership specifically investigated resilience, collaboration and focus and agility. And those three, you know, you'd have trouble finding a leader that didn't agree that those three things are really important and they'd really like to be even better at them. So then once you've got that agreed, <laughs> yeah. um, I usually then ask them, you know, well, what's your experience with mindfulness? And I also ask them very clearly, come on, give me a best shot. What's all of the images, assumptions, everything that comes to mind when you hear the word mindful yeah and um and i really do encourage them to get out all of the prejudice <laughs> all of the you know fluffy you know con you know connotations that it has with various things and i get that out and i um oh, i don't give that megan go on give us an example of the um of the of the wild images and things that might come up in that kind of conversation well, i think a lot of people um well it's it's quite there's usually what i find comes up is that um in terms of connotations it's connected with yoga or or um and that whole image uh, also sort of new age it can be connected very much with buddhism which might work really well with that leader or might not. So those are sort of the images, but then there's some, also some assumptions that mindfulness is about having a quiet mind, uh, a clear mind, uh, or as well, what I find very often is mindfulness is about simply about focus and attention, that's it. So we'll kind of try and get all that out so that I can bust some of the myth. And um, I do that not by, uh, I also, I'm very careful to not 
dismiss the very wide range of mindfulness literature and practice that's helpful to so many people. But I do, I do just say, actually, this is what I mean, and this is what I investigate. And I do link to science and peer-reviewed evidence and data, because that kind of opens ears very often. The data and evidence is still a, you know, a really important door uh, through which you know, you, you know, you're enabled, you can then have a conversation about leadership. So it, it's about saying, you know, what, what do you want to be even better at and what do you need to be? Okay, this is what mindfulness is about and this is what it isn't about. And here's some data and evidence uh, to suggest, and I'm, I'm actually, again, very careful with my words, to suggest that mindfulness practice may be a very promising intervention to make in these areas. So what I also don't do is kind of go in cheerleading with a big banner that goes, yay, 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 look. Because that, in my again, that, again, in my experience, that just turns people off. And anyway, it's inaccurate. You know, there's still more that we don't know, particularly in the leadership and management field, than we do know. And being open and transparent about that enables you to then go on and have a conversation about right, what does this mean? What have we done? What's the evidence? How could this work? with you and, and having the resources that they sort of respect, like the Harvard Business Review <coughs> articles that uh, enable them to, 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 to um, uh, pay more attention to that kind of area. I, I could talk for ages about this, but I'll, I'll pause there. <laughs> no, I love that approach. And I think that's really helpful to, you know, to first of all, talk about measures that are more familiar to them, resilience, collaboration, agility. So kind of measures that are words or language that, that workplaces may be more familiar with. And then that, that approach, and, you know, I can really imagine that at the workshop, you know, let's, let's really get it out there. Come on, let's, what do we know? And, you know, and then returning that with some facts and some data and some research and some scientific evidence to really support them and not over-promising. These are all Things I think are really helpful for people going into workplaces, particularly that not overpromising. Um, yeah, really I think actually, just one more thing I would say is also just a couple of of stories that they really relate to, and not necessarily just in the workplace, because I often find that leaders and managers are actually, when it comes down to it, they're more interested in how mindfulness practice might help them as a father. Yeah. Uh, or a member of their family or community really yes. than they are at work and and you know one very brief story I tell from research is a couple of participants who um, told a story about how stressed they got at work and how they carried that stress back home in their commute you know they charged in through the front door and it took about two minutes before everybody in the family was then in a foul stressed <laughs> mood uh, we can all relate to we that can. we've that all done that yeah we've, we all know that one and and this ability to you know they spoke about the ability to put the key in the keyhole and use that as a trigger moment in which to become aware of what they were about to bring into the family home and and then opening up choice so this is where it links to the habits you know this is how you change habits and it's stories like that. And you can see when leaders are like, oh my God, that totally is meaningful. 
Yeah. So, you know, how do you reach something that really is meaningful to them in this space is, is important? Yeah. Yes, I think we can all we can all relate to bringing to bringing work things home and the impact that makes. So, yeah, I can, I can imagine visualizing the key and making that choice. Beautiful analogy. So maybe we have five minutes left um, and I am. I know going to be fascinated with this employee activism um, work that you're doing. And if you've got a couple of minutes to tell us about that, I'd be really delighted to hear about it. So this came up in our overall project on Speaking Truth to Power, obviously, but is has been a real focus over the last year or so. So you've probably seen on the front page of the newspaper organisations grappling with, and usually, to be honest, messing up, with um, uh, issues of wider social and environmental concern. So in the past, I think organizations and leaders have been able to get away with claiming that their organization is somehow apolitical or neutral. And no, we don't go into issues around race or gender particularly, or whatever the government is choosing to do with immigration you know that's no no, no that, that's out there in the world we'll just get on with our job well now that's not possible to really say <laughs> one because I mean organizations are, are, are making purpose statements left right and center they're being pressured by ESG uh, you know share uh, investors you know people looking for um, uh, wider stakeholder benefit than just shareholder benefit and, and this, you know, increasingly, uh, increasing awareness that there is no such thing as being apolitical, because if you don't make a statement on something, that is as much a political act, because you're essentially perpetuating the status quo, as it is to get off the fence and uh, say what you stand for. So there's a number of... Um, uh, factors that will make it much more likely that employees will be speaking up and seeking to influence organisational policy and strategy on social and environmental concerns in a way that they haven't done before. And our experience is that leaders and managers, and I by the way, I don't mean to separate employee activists from leaders and managers, because leaders and managers may well be employee activists themselves, it's important to say. Um, but I, I think it's also clear that many managers and leaders find themselves woefully ill-prepared to have conversations on what are pretty contentious issues and facilitating what, I, what we call voices of difference. So employee activists are voices of difference that that uh, challenge the status quo. And, uh, and managers and leaders have, have been trained, broadly speaking, over decades to be in control, in charge, offer certainty and advocate solutions. Employee activism, it's a bit tricky to know what else organizations can do aside from engaging in dialogue. And, uh, and being able to facilitate difference and share power and be willing to learn and to admit that they don't know. And that's not 
that's not a habit, talking about habit, that's not habit for at the moment. Um, so our activism research is examining the experience of activists in the workplace and how they choose counter influence. And it's examining how do leaders and managers respond to activist voices, quite a spectrum of responses and how they choose those responses as well. Um, and I, I, the final thing, because obviously I can't, I can't cover it in any depth here, but the one thing I pick out um, is, and this is a bit of a habit, and this is where mindfulness comes in, leaders can very easily find themselves in what I call an optimism bubble, which you could also just say that they're deluded, to be honest. As you get more senior, we know that senior people tend to overestimate the degree to which people are speaking up around them. They overestimate their listening skills and how approachable they are. And they underestimate the challenges that other employees have around them. So they enter up in this little bubble. And of course, nobody tells them that they're in a bubble. Um, because they're, they're quite intimidating and scary. They don't get any feedback either. And then, you know, activist or issues erupt and they don't know how to cope with it. So how do we help leaders to be aware of what I would call their advantage? Um, how do we help them to notice the bubble? And how do we give them the confidence uh, an awareness to reach out to constructively, curiously engage with difference in the workplace. And all of the, you know, the business case for that, but my goodness, the moral case to do that too. Yeah. I mean, this is another podcast in its own right. I mean, I, I, I'm really interested to hear more about that research and what you're finding. I, I, I can sense what's coming up for me is a, um, a, a, a weight of responsibility for um, people in the organization to, like you say, to listen up, to, to allow that safe space for people with very strong views to be able to express those in a way that maybe is not historically being being possible in the workplace. But I'm also thinking about all of the things that are happening in the world just now that have, you know, very strong divisive um, reactions to what's going on and how, you know, if, if that divisiveness is brought into the workplace and, and you quite rightly, you know, make a safe space for people to express their, their opinions and views, how a whole new set of skills are required from not just like you say leaders but everybody in the workplace to, for that to be possible to to remain working in harmony and in safety and productively but also for people to be able to have these views and um to be able to express them and i think hearing more about how that might be possible and workable from you on a future kind of discussion would be fascinating to be able to do that. i'm definitely up for that yeah, Sharon, we can definitely make a date to do that. Thank you, Megan. 
before we close, I just, I wonder, is there anywhere we can signpost people to? Because you've spoken a lot about stuff. Obviously there's the two books. Let me just, um, could you maybe remind us of those? And, it, and yeah. might people be able to go and get, read some of your work or, or research? Because there's, there's so much in what you've just said and I know that people want to read some more. So the two books, uh, the most recent book is called Speak Up. Um, that's with Financial Times Publishing. Um, and the other book on our mindfulness work is called Mind Time, written with Michael Chastelson. And uh, far more resources than you could possibly want or imagine uh, are on my website, which is meganrape.com. Uh, and there's a TEDx talk, particularly on the leadership traps around uh, creating speak up cultures that you might want to look at. And there's also a lot of articles in Harvard Business Review. You can just go to hbr.org and search up my name and you'll see quite a few articles on both of the projects that I've been mentioning and indeed on the activism one that I, I mentioned just uh, recently as well. Thank you, Megan. Um generous sharing both here and on your website and I know that I'll certainly be going back there to have another look um thank you so much for your time today thank you I've really enjoyed it Sharon yeah. thank you thank you